0: A very clear sign of a growing economic crisis has to do with defaults on auto loans. Yes, loans for newly purchased automobiles, new and used, are rising at an alarming pace with hundreds of thousands of consumers facing mounting bills amid surging new car prices. Like so many other areas of the capitalist economy, unsustainable debt becomes the method of choice to paper over the contradictions of the system, that is at least for the time being. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have again, Professor Richard Wolf. He joins us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization, Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you,
1: Brian. Glad to be here.
0: You know, Richard, when we were talking about this week's show, Of course, a big topic would be the BRICS Summit that's starting in South Africa. We're going to talk about that next week with you, we hope, where we'll have a chance to evaluate what actually happened at the summit. But this week, I wanted to talk about this huge wave of defaults on car loans. And the reason I wanted to do that is that the last thing that a working person Defaults on usually is their car loan because, for big parts of the country, if you default on your car loan, if you lose your car, if your car is repossessed, you can't go to work. There's no other way to get to work but by your car. So, in a way, defaults on auto loans are really the canary in the coal mine in terms of what's happening to the working class. I'm looking at a few headlines. Car prices might be unsustainable for buyers. Well, that's truly an understatement. America's consumer debt stress is mounting. Mortgage rates top 7%. Credit card liabilities hit $1 trillion, And now auto loan defaults are on the rise. And one more, Richard. Dealers have cars and prices are stabilizing. But people still can't buy a car. Here's why. Richard, do you agree with me that when people default on an auto loan, it's an indicator that we're going into like really troubled waters? Because that's the last thing most workers can default on. Because without your car, you can't work. And if you can't work, you can't pay rent. You can't pay the mortgage. You can't buy groceries. The car is so crucial. So this is a real sign, I think.
1: Yes, it is. And it's going together with a whole host of other signs. You know, the, the way to get at this is to think of it this way. What the pandemic did when it hit in the early 2020 was to provoke the government to step in and subsidize an economy that was in growing trouble already before that. And it did. It gave all kinds of businesses huge amounts of money to get through this. It gave workers security of wages when their employer couldn't. It gave unemployed people extra money at a time when the crash of the system produced millions of new and additional unemployed people. Now that the two to three years of, of that period are, are behind us, those subsidies are being withdrawn step by step. Last year we had the withdrawal of the help for the unemployed. We've had the cutback and/or ending of subsidies to businesses. We are now not only not subsidizing the businesses, but the Federal Reserve, by raising interest rates, has made the free money that they could borrow for much of the last four or five years no longer free. As you noted, mortgages just crossed 7%, etc. So we are back to an economy, a private capitalist economy, without huge government subsidies, except, of course, in the defense industries and now for the chip makers and so on. But across the board, no, we're not getting those kinds of subsidies. And the underlying weakness of American capitalism is reasserting itself. In the next few days, days, we are going to see the end of the moratorium on student loan repayment. We are already feeling—and it will accelerate now—the end of the moratorium on evictions for folks who cannot cover their rent. And so what you're seeing is growing demands on people's income without a corresponding increase in that income. And the result is As folks like to say in the old song, there's too much month at the end of the money, and therefore something has to give. And you're quite right, they're not going to give up, if they don't have to, on making their rent or mortgage payment, because then they lose the house. They are going to rack up credit on their credit cards, and all the signs are that they're doing that, And now it's worsening, so they're going to have to default on their automobile loans with the terrible result for their jobs that you've pointed to. So yes, this is another piece of evidence of an underlying serious weakness in the American economy unless the government steps in in a fairly massive way to compensate for the weakness. But let me show you how this operates at another level. You mentioned in passing the rising prices of automobiles. Well here you have to understand the role of the United States' decline in the world economy. Automobile producers in the world are now global corporations. General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. And similar kinds of numbers are true for Toyota or Ford or fill in the blank. The United States is no longer the dominant market. So if you're going to cut your prices to sell more cars, you have to cut it less in China, then you would have to to do the same thing here. The American consumer is tapped out. You can't do it here. And if you do try, you're going to suffer either a loss of business or you're going to force people into a greater debt, which they, as you see, cannot sustain. But for the companies, They maybe don't care. They can live with fewer sales here at a higher price and they can recoup whatever that does to their profits here by working on their profits elsewhere, where elsewhere is now a more important market for them than the United States. This is very serious. Here's another factor prices in the United States are really squeezing the consumer. The same is true in Europe, where inflation is worse than in the United States. But the inflation in China is between zero and one percent—way, way less than what it is in Europe or the United States. Which means that it's a market that is not seeing consumers tapped out by an inflation that wipes out their purchasing power the way it is here. Hence you see the borrowing f- surge, hence you see the default. So. This should be seen as an important piece of evidence within a larger decline of the United States economy vis-a-vis that of a good part of the rest of the world. Richard
0: there are there are several sides to this or at least two principal sides when it comes to the defaults on auto loans. One is interest rates have gone up. I bought a car in 2017 and the interest rate that I got for the car was really low. I mean, there had been like zero increases in the rate in the interest rates ever since the 2008 collapse on Wall Street. So the amount that I was paying, it was a small car, a compact car. And I bought it new because I, I just figured, look, the price is not that high as a compact car. And the interest rate was really low. So. The car cost about $15,000. And the total amount of interest I paid per month on the car loan, which was a five year loan, was about $12 a month. It was really low. So now the interest rates are like super high because, in order to tame inflation, the Federal Reserve, the banker's bank, kept increasing interest rates with the idea that they would deliberately create a recession and that that would tamp down demand because people wouldn't have any money if, if there was a recession and they were laid off, and thus the the demand for products would diminish and thus inflation would be tamed. And so interest rates went up and up and up. So now the interest rates are super high. So one level, one part of this equation is very high interest rates and very high debt, and people don't have, as you've been making the point, No longer having either high enough wages or having any government subsidy, which we, you know, some people got in 2020, you know, they just can't pay it. But then the other side of the equation is the car prices themselves. And as an economist, I want to talk to you about this because when one reads Capital and Marx talks about the relationship between what's called the organic capital and variable capital, meaning that the difference in the price between wages and raw materials, the variable capital, and the capital that the capitalist has to employ, which includes machinery, that over time, you know, there's more and more is spent on machine labor, less and less on variable labor. There's a diminishing rate of profit, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, all of that said, that the price of commodities actually goes down. The amount of labor power necessary to produce products diminishes and thus the value and thus the price, which of course fluctuates, but more or less, the value and the price of commodities goes down. So we can see, say in our cell phones that cost so much in 2002 or 2003, by 2010, everybody could afford one more or less. But car prices don't go down. Car prices only go up. And I want to read to you from the Wall Street Journal. Five years ago, there were a dozen models of new cars that sold for less than $20,000. That would have been one of the cars I bought in 2017. In 2023, there was only one the Spartan Mitsubishi Mirage hatchback, which accounted for about 5,300 of the 7.7 million new vehicles sold. So, of the cars that sold under 20,000 in 2023, that was only 5,300 vehicles out of 7.7 million. If you are willing to spend more than 100000 you can choose from 32 models. For the average American, paying off a new car at current prices demands 42 weeks of income, according to data from Cox Automotive, up from around 33 before the pandemic. Bargains have been hard to come by on the used car lot as well, where the average vehicle listed for About $27,000, that's for used vehicles, not new ones, up more than 30% from pre-pandemic levels, according to Cox data. Richard, I say all this to ask you, why do prices never go down when it comes to cars? Why do they only go up? They stabilize sometimes for a while, but then they go up. And I want to ask you whether this is just monopoly price gouging.
1: Well, mostly what you're seeing here is a reflection of The way the automobile industry is organized, as I said before, it is now very much a global industry. A dozen companies are producing most of the cars that are sold everywhere. In Europe, you know, the domination of the VW, Volkswagen, together with BMW and so on. Here in the United States, everybody knows the names, the Japanese with their enormous power through Nissan, Toyota, and so on. These are all global economies. Why is that important? Because a global business is constantly evaluating the different opportunities in one part of the world or the other because they produce around the world, they distribute their product around the world. So they're constantly looking at the conditions in each area to decide not only where they invest and where they build factories, but also what prices they should charge. And in every market, here's the basic calculation. We keep raising the price And then we measure, as we raise the price, how many people no longer can afford to buy our car, either by paying for it or by buying it on time. Since the vast majority of cars are bought on time, then the question is, you know, how far can we raise it given the level of debt people are able or willing to sustain? Now, what has happened in the United States over the last 30 years, because what you're seeing now is the product of all of that time, not just some fluctuation month by month. Over the last 30 years, there has been a dramatic change in the distribution of wealth and income in the United States. A huge amount of wealth has been redistributed from the bottom and the middle to the top. That's why there are 30 choices for cars over a hundred thousand dollars and one choice for a car below fifteen thousand or whatever the number was that you gave. That's a reflection of the fact that The car makers understand they can keep raising the prices and selling cars to the top 5 or 10 percent of the American distribution because they've gotten richer enough to pay for it. The vast majority of Americans are being systematically priced out of the market. And we're seeing this everywhere, not just in automobiles. If you look at higher-priced clothing, if you look at higher-priced food, it's the same story. People are switching from the higher price to the lower price because they can't afford it. Between the distribution of income upward, depriving millions the ability to afford, you also have the inflation, which gets them the other way at the same time. The companies all make this calculation. I know that if I raise the price of a car in the United States, the middle and the bottom will not be able to keep up, and therefore I have to measure how much extra profit I get from jacking up the price on the people who still buy the car versus how much of my profit do I lose by the loss of the customer who can no longer afford it. They keep raising the price so long as the extra they gain from the people who can afford it is larger than the profit they lose from the people who can't. And now here comes the second international aspect. They won't worry about the loss of profit in the United States if they're improving their profitability without having to raise prices in other parts of the world. And that's what they're doing. This is a sign of the relative decline. The United States is still a rich country. The United States is still a place that buys a lot of cars, but it's not what it was. And what we're watching, as if we were watching a a movie in slow motion, is the after effects of this kind of decline. And the rising price of cars means that the automobile companies looking at the world market get more by raising prices and selling to the rich in the United States and selling to the rest of the world than catering to the American middle and lower classes, because to cater to them, they'd have to drop prices in a way they don't have to do in other parts of the world. Here comes China again. China is a growing, expanding economy. It has grown faster over the last 30 years than the United States, two to three times faster. They are now rising as a market for everything, including automobiles. That's where the action is. That's where you want to sell massive amounts of cars. And that's your compensation for the loss of the middle and lower class in the United States that can't afford your cars here anymore. It's more and more this American economy is serving the top 5 or 10 percent. And is pushing the rest of the people into a low-consumption, low-income hinterland. And people should understand that's the way most of the world used to be organized. They have been figuring out, especially in China, how to change that. We are the decliner who can't sustain what we once had and are now looking like what the rest of the world once was. It's not a pretty picture, but that's the reality.
0: Richard, as we move to our last five minutes or so, I wanna change topics and we're gonna come back next week to evaluate what actually happened at the BRICS summit. There's a lot of debate going on at the BRICS summit, which is taking place in South Africa. But I just want to get your initial take or get a few quick comments from you. You know, Richard, the group of seven is Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States, as well as the European Union. Russia used to be invited as a dinner guest, but they were evicted. Uh, it was for a moment the G8, but it's back to the G7. The BRICS countries Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. We could call them the group, the G5, for instance. Many, many countries in the global South of all types of different governments, ideologically different governments, are applying to join BRICS. There's differences of opinion, apparently, between the five current members of BRICS about whether to expand, who to include, et cetera. So there's a lot of debates. It's not like the old socialist bloc in 1950, which was anchored in a single country, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And it's not an ideological block at all. It started off as a, an attempt to have economic relations outside of some of the prohibitions of intellectual property right dictatorship imposed on them back in, in 2003 or 2004. India and Brazil, for instance, India was producing, and India is the largest producer of pharmaceutical goods. In the world and Brazil and some African countries wanted to buy the HIV AIDS cocktail that treated or sustained people who had HIV. But India couldn't sell it, even though it could manufacture these medicines. They couldn't sell it because they didn't have intellectual property ownership. Those ownership resided in Western countries. And so what started off as an effort, a pragmatic effort to sort of create some balance in the world economy. That's now growing. Now we're 20 years later, it's 2023. The GNP, I think of the G5, the BRICS countries is now larger than that of the G7. I think I'm right on that. Yes, you are. It shows that the balance of forces has shifted and these countries. There are big countries, emerging countries in the global south They're not all united around a socialist project. Some of them, like India, very, very anti-communist. But they don't want to be dictated to. And they're emerging and becoming strong enough that they don't have to be dictated to. It's kind of a, we're reaching these watershed moments in the world economy. And the U.S. wants to stuff the genie back in the bottle, but it doesn't seem quite possible.
1: Yes, I, I do understand there is a debate about the BRICS as an alternative. So let me be in a few minutes real clear with folks where things stand. The BRICS already is an alternative. They now account for about 22, 23% of total output of goods and services in the world come from those five countries. By comparison, the G7, that's the US and its allies, including Canada and Japan, are now account for about 19%. The gap between them is getting larger with each year. They crossed in 2020. That's when they were about the same. And the gap, as you see, has gone against the United States. And there is no reason or expectation that that will change. That gap will get larger. That means that in the world today, The richest concentration of wealth is that of the Chinese and their allies, not the United States. It's the kind of a world economy divided between two powerhouses, where before it was one. Every little country around the world having a problem, needing a loan, needing a trade deal, welcoming a business, they now have a choice. They can play the G7, U.S., against the BRICS, China, and get the best deal. And that's exactly what they're doing. That is an absolute transformation. We haven't seen that in a hundred years. That's how long the United States has effectively dominated, especially after World War II, in other words, since 1945. The result is, of course, complicated. The BRICS, as you point out, is not one country. It's not dominated by China particularly. It's got all kinds of different societies. But that's always true. Historical change is always messy. It may look in the writings of people later as though it was kind of clearly A and B fighting it out. But once you look a little more closely, there were lots of players on both sides, and they had different agendas. So it is with BRICS. Russia is very different from India. Both of them are different from Brazil. You know, now Brazil is governed by Lula. A couple of years ago, it was governed by Bolsonaro. They could not be more different almost than you can imagine. And governments are changing and conditions are changing. There will be struggles inside Of the BRICS among them, of course. But they are all really committed to being the dominant player. It's a heady experience for them. They haven't been anywhere near that before. Let me remind you that India and China were neck and neck for being the poorest countries on this planet half a century ago. They have come unbelievably far, China a good bit further than India, but nonetheless these are extraordinary countries. Brazil is dominant in Latin America and so on. So there will be struggles, there will be changes. Look, there are on the G7 too, You may not know it, but France, a member of the G7, had applied to join the BRICS. That's how complicated these things are. The BRICS turned the French down. Everything Mr. Macron touches in France turns to excrement. He is the most (laughs) dilapidated politician other than those we have in this country. In any case, BRICS is changing the world. That will continue because the underlying economic transformations are underway and nobody can stop that. The United States is flailing around the Seventh Fleet in the South China Sea, etc., etc., Ukraine, Hong Kong, Taiwan. But these are the gestures, dangerous for sure, but these are the gestures of someone who can't stop a historical process. Let me conclude with a statistic for you. The International Monetary Fund produced a couple of weeks ago a projection of how economic growth will go for the rest of 2023 and all of 2024. So how things look now. Here's a reality check as I tell you this because it so flies in the face of the noise out there trying to push the other way. Out of the major eight or nine economies in the world, one of them is projected not only not to grow, but to shrink. That's the United Kingdom. Britain is a basket case economy today. The United States has a mediocre project of growth, somewhere between two, maybe two and a half percent larger than either Britain or the United States in economic growth over the next 18 months is, believe it or not, Russia. But the country that's completely off the chart is China. Okay, Russia and China are the two leaders of how the world economic growth is going to look over the next 18 months. You can dance 12 ways around this, but there's the reality. And it's been that kind of reality that has made so many of the political calculations, the ideological news stories, so off the mark, because they're about denial and pretense, and they don't want to face the reality. We'd be much better off as a society. Asking the really hard question, why does it look like that? And what can we do to improve our situation? Than keeping on pretending that what is happening, which has been happening for 30 to 40 years now, is somehow no longer happening. It's just make believe.
0: It's make believe and it's dangerous. I was looking, Richard, at the, at the front page of the Washington Post this morning. 33 states have passed laws or are about to pass laws that limit the right of not just the Chinese government, but Chinese companies and Chinese individuals from buying land in their states. In other words, a new version of the Chinese Exclusion Act emerging, all of it to stop this reality that, as you point out, is not going to stop. And so the U.S. wants to blame the Chinese target Chinese people, encourage anti-Chinese animus and hostility, obviously rising tide of anti-Asian sentiment and hate crimes here in the U.S. while the new Cold War goes into high gear. Maybe new Cold War is the wrong sort of language. Richard, what we want to do next week is have you back to evaluate what happened at the BRICS summit, because I think these are the big issues in the world Everything else is important, but, you know, the framing, the historical context is where we need to go. With that, we're going to end. We'll be back tomorrow, everyone. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at RD Wolf. that's r-d-w-o-l-f-f dot com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. Thank <music>